I didn't plan it like this. I thought normal would be just fine. So I set aside my aspirations as a musician, married a nice girl, settled down, got a job, and we started a family. We'd live the American dream, we thought. Work hard, become prosperous, buy a nice house, raise our two boys, and finally retire somewhere beautiful. You know, normal. But there's a problem. My wife and I were Christians, and that can mess up your plans if you're serious about it. There's a psalm that says, delight yourself in Yahweh, and he will give you the, desi the desires of your heart. What David didn't tell us is that when we do this, God changes our desires to align with his plan, not ours. Surprise. So we adopted an infant girl from a Korean orphanage. Our parents were proud of us. Then another, and then a third, much older this time. Okay, they said, that's enough of all that. All things in moderation. But God said, do you trust me? Keep going. So we began adopting the unadoptable kids. Nobody else would. Nine of them all together. Mentally challenged, crippled, blind, abused, terminally ill, no chance for a normal life. Our parents were appalled. We too kissed normal goodbye. My wife did the heavy lifting. I worked two jobs to keep us afloat financially. The math never worked, but somehow we thrived. We always had a roof over our heads, cars that ran, and food on the table. As we were awaiting our post-polio daughter from India, we began adding a new bedroom wing. The very day the contractor tore the back of the house off, I lost my primary job. Again, God said, do you trust me? Keep going. I had no choice but to turn my side job into a full-time business. After a while, God's plan to bless us became evident. I closed the business after nine years, and we moved 3,000 miles to co-found a dot-com startup. Three years later, I sold my stock and left. The company was bankrupt eight months later. We never set aside a penny for retirement, but I've been able to spend the past 17 years researching God's word. The music career I gave up became 30 years as a worship leader, and today, somehow, we are debt-free and looking forward to our 50th anniversary. Normal is overrated. Good morning, my name is Josh Power, and I am the student pastor here, and I'm so humbled and honored to have the privilege to speak this morning. Uh, but before we go into the message, I just wanna say, I've been in ministry for almost a decade now, and this place is amazing. Uh, you guys have some phenomenal staff, some phenomenal pastors, and I just want to tell you, this is an incredible place to be. Uh, Pastor Carter, thank you so much for the opportunity, but more importantly, thank you for your leadership. Will you do me a favor? Will you help us just honor our staff and our pastors really quick? I mean, what a blessing to be at a place like this. So the story you just heard is actually the story of my parents. And so it was interesting growing up for me because I had siblings with wheelchairs and oxygen tanks and feeding tubes. And so for me, to say the least, my childhood was not really normal, but that was okay. Um, I got to watch and see my parents uh, just live a life that just honored God. And one of the things that stood out to me the most was that Throughout their lives, they, they came to this realization to trust God is to surrender to God. You see, time and time again, I watched or I heard about how my parents, in situations that made no sense, financially it didn't make sense, uh, just in general, like the idea didn't make sense, and time and time again, they surrendered to the will of God and God showed up. 
It's amazing to me just to to see our family and to see where we've come from. The story that we're going to tap into this morning is the story of Moses. And so if you want to open your Bibles, you can open them to Exodus chapter 3. But before we get into our passages this morning, I want to focus in uh, just on setting the stage. So we've got Moses, right? Moses is born in Egypt. He's a Hebrew. And uh, at this time, Pharaoh's in charge, right? And Pharaoh's looking out and he's, he's getting overwhelmed. He's looking at this Hebrew nation and saying, oh my gosh, like how are we going to be able to contain this, pe- this group of people? And so he, he puts out a mandate to all of his soldiers, hey, listen, go out and kill every Hebrew baby boy. It was a way for them to control the population. And so Moses' mother, out of desperation, takes her son and puts him into a reed basket and floats him down the Nile. So Pharaoh's daughter happens to be on the Nile at the time and she finds this baby boy and she says, okay, like I want this kid, like I've got to take him in. And she says to some of her her people that are with her, she says, hey, listen, uh, I need some help. And it's funny, Moses' sister is watching this basket float by and she says, well, I know somebody that might just be able to step in and help you out. And so Moses' mother actually is able to help raise him. And so for 40 years, Moses spends his life in essentially royalty and he's living this life that's Egyptian but at his core he's Hebrew, right? He's raised by his mother. And one day he's walking through Egypt and he sees a slave driver just really beating on this Hebrew slave and something happens within the heart of Moses. Moses has this desire, this this motion or thought to, to act and so he does. And he goes after this, this slave driver and he kills him. And so Pharaoh, Pharaoh's obviously not happy and puts a bounty out for, for Moses' head. And so Moses flees. But I just want to stop there just for a second. How ironic is, that, is it that Moses' heart for deliverance started 40 years before his encounter with God? Right? So he tried something. He looked at it and he, he saw a problem. His heart broke and he did something about it. And I believe that very well could have been the Holy Spirit. That very well could have been God. The timing was just not right. And I wonder how many of us have had moments in our lives where we tried something, we felt like God was telling us to do something and it failed epically. And in the back of our minds, we're thinking, okay, like clearly this wasn't of God and so we fled from it. I wonder how many dreams, how many miracles that God said, no, 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 I'm not done yet. That was just the start. So Moses flees, he flees to Midian, which is nearly 360 miles away from Egypt. And he comes upon some shepherds who are pushing these girls away, simply trying to water their flock. And Moses comes to their rescue. And so they go back to their father, Jethro. And Jethro looks at his daughters and say, what were you doing? Like, why, you didn't bring the guy home and he came to your rescue? Like, are you crazy? So they got him and Moses comes into the house of Jethro. He actually marries one of Jethro's daughters. And this is where our story is gonna pick up. But think of this really quick. Moses was a Hebrew baby, born a slave, raised in Egyptian royalty, flees, and now becomes a shepherd. And in Exodus 3 verse 1, it says this. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now now see this really quick. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. See, what's fascinating about this is that in this era and this time, your status, your wealth was based upon how much livestock you held. Moses wasn't even looking after his own flock. He had nothing. He was a nobody. But how fascinating is it to find that while he was a nobody, tending a flock that wasn't even his own, 
Is it possible that his father in heaven was simply preparing him to tend his flock in the future? You see, God wouldn't change Moses' occupation. He would simply change his flock. Our passage goes on and says, like I said, he, he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. It's at this location that would hold major significance in Moses' life later on that God met him for the first time. In Exodus 3, verse 2, it says, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses sees this thing and he's like, what in the world is going on here, right? Like this is, this is weird, this doesn't make any sense. And so he, he goes over and it's here, God calls Moses by name and in Exodus three verse seven he says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So, so God looks at his people and is trying to convey to Moses, listen, I see them, I hear them. They are in desperate need. And it's at this point that God commissions Moses to go back and save his people. Now, just process this with me for a second, right? If, if I'm Moses and there's a bush, let's just say I'm not Moses, let's just say I'm Josh and I walk outside and one of the bushes in the front is on fire but it's not burning up and then it talks to me. I don't know about you, but I'm probably gonna do what the bush says, right? Like, I'm not gonna debate it. I'm like, okay, that, that's not normal. This is a miracle of God. But what's crazy is that Moses looks at this and says, whoa, 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 okay. Like, I got, I hear you, like, I'm, I, I believe you, but in Exodus 3.1, he says this. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? His first pushback to God was, what if I'm not good enough? What if I'm not qualified enough? Why, why would I stand before the king of Egypt, Pharaoh? What, what if I don't have the qualifications to get there? What if I can't even get into his room because of who I am? I'm just a shepherd. I'm just a man. Like, like this makes no sense, God. And, and you would think that, that Moses would be done there, but Moses isn't done. In Exodus 3.13, he says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? You see, in that time in, in scripture, uh, when God revealed himself to man in those days, it was often associated with a newly revealed name or title for God. So this question was a very valid question that Moses was asking, right? He, he was essentially asking, by what name did God reveal himself to you? Like, what am I supposed to tell them when they ask that? Uh, and when Abraham encountered God, he identified himself as the God most high, almighty God, everlasting God. When he revealed himself to Hagar, he identifies himself as the God who sees. And when he identifies himself to Jacob, he, identif he identifies himself as El Elohe, or the God of Israel, or El Bethel, the God of the house of God. His second pushback to God was, what if your people doubt you? What if your people don't believe that you sent me? What if, how am I to prove that this happened? How am I to validate my calling? But he wasn't done. Exodus 4.1. What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? His third pushback to God is what if your people don't believe me? Not only what if they don't believe you, what if they don't believe me? What if they question my integrity? What if they question my call? What if they say I'm lying that this never happened? 
And yet Moses still wasn't done. In Exodus 4.10, he says, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. His fourth pushback was, what if I'm not qualified? What if I'm not talented enough? What if I don't have the means to accomplish the call? What if I can't? I'm no speaker. I'm no pastor. I have no talents that qualify me for this calling. And yet he still wasn't done. His final plea was in Exodus 4.13. He says, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. His final pushback was, what if you send someone else? God, what if you, you could totally ask somebody else more qualified than me, right? What if you just sent somebody else? And I would dare to say this morning that just about every single person in this room has listened to a what if in their lives. But here's the reality. It's our first point this morning. It's what ifs are the greatest enemies to what cans. You see, what and if are two words that hold absolutely no power when they're apart. But when you put them together, they have the power to deter us from the calling of God on our lives. And the reality is to the, every, the root of every what if is fear. And fear is perhaps the greatest weapon that can be used against us and against the power of God in our lives. I mean, Moses was in the presence of God. He was listening to the voice of God. And yet he allowed the presence of fear to overwhelm him. If the voice and the presence of God can overwhelm Moses... Right? If, if a bush talking to you that's on fire, that's not burning up, can, overwhelm, can, can be overwhelmed by the presence of fear, how easily are we deterred from fear? I wonder how many of us have allowed the what-ifs to deter us from God's call on our lives or that has defined our future. How many of us have allowed the what-ifs to deter us from the power and presence of God? How many miracles have been missed? How many lives have been left unchanged? And how many shackles? have been left shackled. The truth is to every what if, God responds with an I am. What if I'm not good enough? God responds with I will be with you and I am good enough. And because I am good enough, so are you. What if your people doubt? God responds, I am, I am. What if your people don't believe me? God responds with an I am. In fact, let me just show you who I am. What if I'm not qualified? God responds with an I am qualified. And because I'm qualified, I make you qualified. What if you send someone else? God responds with an I can, but I chose you. Here's the honest truth. You're never going to be good enough. You're always going to be doubted. People will always doubt God. You're, always go you're, go you're never going to be qualified enough. And God always can send somebody else, but he chose you. So many Christians want to see God's power and activity in their lives, but so few of us are willing to step out in faith because we listen to the what ifs. You and I will always have the choice to listen to the voice of God or to listen to the voice of fear. Will you choose fear over faith or will you choose faith over fear? The problem that we encounter when we listen to fear and when we listen to the what ifs is that by doing so, we miss out on the what cans. The story that I shared earlier was the story of my parents and I fall into that story at some point. I'm actually the youngest of 11. And so I was the last one adopted. And so my story begins in Seoul, South Korea in 1990. Uh, my biological parents decided that they, they didn't, couldn't take care of me financially. I know for a fact I'm one of, uh, one of five there. And so they, they placed me in an orphanage and I was adopted by a family in South, South, or South, sorry, in California, Southern California, that's what I meant to say. 
And um, this family, to a very real extent for me at least, would have been the American dream, right? Taken out of an orphanage and placed into a home that had future, but this wasn't the reality for me. I was actually abused and neglected for three to four years. And at the age of three, almost four, I was under three feet tall and weighed 24 pounds. In the doctor's words, I was a failure to thrive and wouldn't amount to anything. And so foster care, because my parents had done extensive work with kids, called my parents up and said, hey, listen, we don't typically do this with people your age because you're a little bit older and you, you've got quite a few kids, but we see your track record and your track record is undeniable. Uh, would you consider taking in one more? And so my parents, I have to imagine, had to have had some what-ifs that went through their heads. What if we can't take care of him? What if we don't have the means to be able to help him through the psychological and developmental problems that he's gone through in his early childhood? What if he doesn't fit into the family? What if we just can't do this? Can I tell you this morning that I'm so thankful that my parents listened to God when he said, keep going? Can I tell you this morning that I'm so thankful that I have parents that said, listen, I'm not going to listen to the what ifs, but I'm going to listen to the God of I am. Because I can tell you with confidence that I wouldn't be standing here before you. In fact, I have no idea where I would be. And this morning, I just want to challenge you to think about what are the what ifs you're listening to? What are the what ifs you're listening to? This morning, you may not know the specifics of your call, and while you probably haven't had the miracle of a burning bush, if you have, come talk to me. I'd love to see it. We do have the miracle of the cross. Our burning bush commissioning us is Jesus Christ. Our call is the great commission. It's the greatest commandment. It's to love God and to love others, and it's to go and make disciples. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, well, Josh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a pastor. Not everyone is called to be a pastor, but everyone is called to be a disciple. And I wonder what kind of impact we could make on our city if we chose faith over fear, if we chose to listen to the voice of God over the voice of fear. This morning, you should know, outside of those doors, there's an Egypt. Like, when you walk out of these doors, there's an Egypt. There are people outside of our doors that are bound by shame, regret, fear, and they're overwhelmed by that. And here's the reality is that we have the opportunity to answer a call to go out and make disciples and not just lead them out of Egypt, but lead them to a savior that they desperately need. I wonder what, it, what we could do as a church if we decided as a unit to say, hey, listen, God, I don't know what this looks like, but I'm going to listen to you over listening to the voice of fear. What ifs are simply excuses and scripture tells us that faith without works is dead. I think it's time, especially you know our world, the way that it is for a generation, for a church to rise up and to say, hey, listen, I don't know what this looks like, but I'm not gonna just talk about my faith. I'm gonna put my faith into action. But what does this look like? What, how do we do this, right? I mean, this sounds great, Josh. I mean, I don't have a burning bush, but let's just say that the cross is my burning bush. How do I accomplish this? Well, that comes with accepting the call. What comes with accepting the call is the necessity of obedience. You see, if I call you on the phone, you have a decision in that moment to either answer the phone or to ignore the phone. And God called Moses to go to Egypt just like he's called us to go into this world. So we've had the option, are we going to go or are we not? 
But the calling didn't come without a promise. God told Moses in Exodus 4.12, I will be with you in the same way he promised that Jesus is with us. And the calling also didn't come without direction. Then the Lord said to Moses, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Now a staff at that time was a symbol for the shepherd. And the staff was something that they would use for balance. They would use it for guidance. They would use it for protection. And I wonder, perhaps it wasn't the same staff all 40 years, but I wonder how many times that Moses looked at the staff and he said, oh, it's just a staff. I wonder if he ever knew that this staff would literally change the trajectory of an entire nation. I wonder if he understood that this staff would be a vessel of God, for God and that this, from this staff, miracles would be performed. He had no idea what this staff actually was. In Exodus 4, 4 through 5, it says, The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And while the staff has some undeniable significance in the story and the miracles that you'll find later on in Exodus, what I want us to see this morning is that it's not about the staff, but it's about the action itself. Let's look at our second point. It's not about the staff, it's about obedience. It wasn't the staff that had the power to transform into a snake. It wasn't the staff that would turn water into blood, that would part the Red Sea, that would bring water from a rock. It was the act of obedience of the one holding the staff, Moses. Before the action of the obedience, the staff served only one purpose, that of a shepherd. But when obedience was walked out, the power and potential of the staff became evident. God's direction to Moses was abundantly clear, throw down your staff. And his direction to us is abundantly clear as well. Love God, love others, make disciples. But obedience, can be hard. So my wife and I have twins, and I think we have a picture. So they are absolutely awesome. We absolutely love our kids. Now, I'll tell you straight up, because somebody asked me this before, like, were you expecting twins? Absolutely not. And um, if you, this will be a question that I, I'll probably continually get, is people want to know, like, are you going to have more? Well, the doctors actually told us that the likelihood goes up after you've had a set of twins. So I'm a little hesitant, I'm not going to lie, because I don't know if I could do that again. Um, but our kids are, are turning two in September, and it's been so much fun just watching them grow up and watching them start to talk and put words and phrases together. Um, and so you, you'll hear them start to say things like, I love you, or sit up, or get up. That's one of their favorite things, is if I sit, if I sit down or my wife sits down, they want us to get up. For whatever reason, they like being up high, right? And, and so they've put these phrases together and one of the things that they love to say is mine. And whoo, like there's two words that, that, that like kind of just make your blood boil as a parent to a certain degree, right? It's, it's the word mine and it's, and it's the word no. Like I, I, my kids don't fully understand or grasp that you can't say no to mommy and daddy, uh, but they'll learn at some point. Like I promise you that, they'll learn, right? Uh, 
And, and so one of the things that they love to do is they love to go around our house and they love to pick up stuff, right? And they often like to pick up the stuff that they aren't supposed to have. Like, I don't know what it is. Like, we've got, there's so many toys in our house. Like, my, their grandparents just love spoiling them. And I'm like, hey, stop buying stuff because we don't know where to put it, right? And so they've got so much stuff all over the house, but they always go after this. Like, I don't know what it is, right? They, they pick it up and they'll grab it. And I had a time the other day where Evelet picked it up and she said mine. And I said, no, that is not yours, right? Like, you better give that back. And, and, and they, have, they have a decision at that point, right? When I look at them and I say, hey, you've got to give that back to me. They, they have to decide, am I going to obey my daddy or am I going to run the other way? Because that's what they do. They don't just stand there. If I say, hey, give that to daddy, they, they either give it to me or they take off running. I'm like, okay, like collect yourself, right? Um, but what's so fascinating to me is that there's things that they want from this phone that they can't do without daddy. I don't know if I, I've told you this, but I have some pretty amazing powers. Like, I'm just telling you really quick because like when they give this to me, I can turn on Baby Shark or Mickey Mouse Club and that's like pardon the Red Sea to them, right? They're like, oh my gosh. But isn't it crazy how they know that I can do this and yet oftentimes they'll run the other way and without me, this holds very little significance or use, right? They can't do anything with it, it's locked. And yet there's time and time again where they don't, they don't listen, they run the other way. And I'm like, if you would just trust me with that, if you would obey and give it to me, I'm more inclined to give you what you want. But when they don't, when they run the other way, I'm like, heck no, you're not getting no Mickey Mouse Club. Like that's not happening. And I wonder how many times we've found ourselves in situations where we've been called by God to obey, but we're like, ah, I don't know if I can just do that. It leads us to our third point this morning. Surrendering what we have unleashes what he has. Surrendering what we have unleashes what he has. In obeying the direction of God, Moses surrendered what he had and in turn unleashed what God had. You know, if you had, like I said, if you had told Moses that his staff would perform the wonders it would, do you think that he would believe you? Right? I mean, do you think, I mean, if I was holding this stick and I looked at you and I said, hey, listen, I'm going to go out to a river out there and I'm going to part this river with this stick, you'd probably look at me and say, hey, we've got to find another student pastor. Right? Like, this guy may be a little bit out there. For that matter, had you told Moses prior to the burning bush that he would lead his people out of Egypt, what do you think he would have said? But the reality was that it wasn't the staff that Moses held, it was the act of obedience in Moses and the willingness to surrender the staff that unleashed God. It's amazing how much God can do with what we have. And you look at throughout scripture how many times God has taken something so insignificant or something minor and he's done something miraculous with it. Moses, is in, Moses and his staff, David and his sling and rocks, a boy with fish and bread, Gideon with his clay pots. But this is only possible when we fully surrender. Perhaps you're asking, surrender what? Everything. Romans 12.1 tells us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Jesus tells the rich young ruler to sell his possessions and follow him. And in James 4.7, it tells us to submit ourselves to God. Now, listen, I'm not gonna tell you that you need to sell all your possessions and, and, and give up everything that you have. 
but I wonder what it would look like if we released control. Not just went out and sold things mindlessly, but instead we simply said, God, listen, I don't know what you can do with this, but here it is. One of the greatest challenges that we face against God's will on our lives is control. You see, what we control, he can't. Or should I say, he won't. What we know is that when people encountered Jesus they, and chose to follow him, they surrendered what they once were, they surrendered what they had. And there are so many Christians wanting the miracles of God but unwilling to surrender to the call of God, unwilling to surrender their all to God. In Exodus 4, 3, the Lord said, throw it on the ground. He said, what's that in your hand? Moses responded, it's a staff. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. But had Moses' action not been in obedience, but instead he responded halfway, what would have happened? If Moses, in fact, instead said, all right, God, you want this, but I just, I really like this staff. I mean, I've had it for a long time and I don't, I don't know if I can do this. And I wonder how many of us have things in our lives that we've clung to so tightly, but we've been praying for such a long time. God, please do something in my life. God, please help my kids, help my finances, help me in this church, help me in my ministry. But we've clung so tightly to it that God's like, I can't, I can't. You won't relent control. And because you won't relent control, I can't do the things that I want to do in your life. Perhaps this morning, there's something in your life that you've held tightly to. Perhaps it's, it's your life itself. And maybe this morning, God's calling you to surrender yourself to him. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe you've been stressed out about your finances and you're saying, Josh, I don't know if I can trust God with, with my tithe because I don't know if I can make ends meet. And God's just saying, listen, if you would just give what I've called you to, if you would just obey and surrender what you have, oh, the blessings that I wanna pour out on you. Maybe it's your relationship or your marriage. You've been struggling and you've said, I don't know how to fix it, but you've tried to fix it yourself and you've clung to it so tightly because you think that you can do all the fixing yourself and God's simply saying, just give it to me. Just trust me with it. If you would simply throw it down, I could do things that would absolutely blow your mind. Maybe it's your emotions of stress or depression. And maybe, if you're honest, you've clung so tightly and the activity of God has been stifled. Perhaps we've dropped one edge, but we have yet to throw it down. This morning, I wonder what it would look like if we decided, God, my marriage, my finances, my ministry, my family, everything that I am, I throw it down. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what you're gonna do with it, but I am trusting you. I'm listening to the God of I am's and I'm no longer gonna listen to the what ifs or the voice of fear. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. And thank you for the fact that you are the God of I am. Thank you for the fact that you have led us out of our Egypts, that we are sitting here in your presence this morning. Father, I pray that you would call on us this morning, move on hearts this morning, and allow us to trust you. Allow us to surrender what we have, whatever it looks like. Allow us to listen to the voice of you over the voice of fear. Allow us to act out of obedience. 
Father, we trust you fully. And this morning, we want to surrender what we have.